Octa Non Verba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octonon verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Dave Sanderson is a nationally recognized leadership speaker, accomplished author, and inspirational survivor of what is known as the miracle on the Hudson. As the last passenger off U.S. Airways Flight 1549, which had to ditch in the river, he took the lessons he learned from that profound experience in the frigid waters and emerged from the wreckage with the mission to encourage others to do the right thing and share coping skills to address any adversity that they may face. Named as one of Inc.com's top 100 leadership speakers, so this tells you the power of what he speaks about, Dave travels the world to share his experiences on leadership lessons, and he has raised nearly $15 million for the American Red Cross over the last 10 years through his speaking and his talks. If you want to learn more about him, if you want to know about his story, go to davesandersonspeaks.com. You can buy courses, you can buy his book, you can see his TEDx, you can learn more about him. Dave, thank you so much for your time and for being here today. Thank you very much for having me, Dave. Thank you very much. We spoke just a little bit before on the pre-interview. It's interesting to me that sometimes it takes a lifetime of experience to prime us for some sort of adversity like this. And a lot of people know who you are because of that, but there was a lot to you before that. Can you tell us about some of the things that you learned or some of the things that set you up for success in that moment? Because so many times we think reading a book or watching a TEDx talk is enough to prepare us, but that's really not really enough to get us in that place when the moment arrives. You know, thank you for asking me that question, Marcus, because I think a lot of people think they see the top of the iceberg, but they don't see it under anything that goes underneath it. Everything it takes to get that iceberg to be the iceberg. Yeah. And I was uh, very blessed that, you know, my parents, they taught me pretty much everything that I knew, but I think they were very, too, I was too close to them to really understand mm. some of the things they were, they were teaching me. And, but one of the things my dad told me when I was young, uh, he told me my word is my bond. And so I, that, that, that stuck with me the rest of my life. And that came to play many times because one of the things that happened to me right after I got out of college, is he told me I had 30 days to get, you know, get a, get a job and get out of the house. And my dad was a man of his word. In 30 days, I did not have a job, and I was not out of his house, so he helped me get my first job. And that first job was being an assistant restaurant manager at a place called Howard Johnson. I knew nothing about hotel restaurants, but I was out of his house, so and I had a job. So he fulfilled the, the, the word that he said to me. My third stop, Martin's are here is Charlotte, and if you know anything about hotel restaurants, being the second assistant means... You're not working nine to five. You're working evenings and overnights. But that turned out to be a real blessing for me because we had a gentleman and his, and his wife. His name was Bill. Her name was Bonnie. He was 77 and she was 74. would come in every night, have ice cream, coffee, and we talk. And, you know, it was, it's nice to, you know, you're a restaurant manager and you're there and, you know, someone takes interest. But, you know, I was at that point, I wasn't making a lot of money. And I was dating my future wife. And what happened was, is I wanted to take her out on a date, but I really didn't have a lot of money to do it. So he gave me two movie passes to take her out. So here, take your girl out. And he said, just tell me your experience. How was, you, how was your experience? So I went out. It was a Queens Park Theater here in Charlotte. I gave the tickets to the young man. He goes, tell Mr. Bill Hay. And I said, okay. Um, it didn't mean anything to me, right? But then... Next day, I saw Bill. I, he said, well, how was your experience? I said, he, this guy told me to tell you, hey. He goes, well, I own that movie theater. He said, by the way, I've owned 80 movie theaters and restaurants in the Carolinas over all these years. So this gentleman was very accomplished. 
this gentleman was, I call him the Sam Walton of Charlotte, where you would never know who he was. He was distinguished and basically made he was successful. Fast forward to December of 9, 24th, 1984. He came to the restaurant early that day. He was driving a blue Corvette. And I never seen him. He said, this is why I got Bonnie for Christmas. I said, well, that's cool. I, I mean, I've never seen a Corvette. I could spell Corvette. I could, you know, what a Corvette smelled like. It was cool. And he threw me the keys and said, let's take a ride. We went up and down Woodlawn Road in Charlotte. And I came back. I gave him the keys. I said, man, Bonnie's going to dig this. He goes, you need one of these. I said, Bill, I'm making $13,000 a year. Bill, I can afford my rent. He goes, that's your problem. Listen, you got to change the way you think. He goes, can I show you what it takes to be successful? So for 13 years, he mentored me. and shared all these lessons, all these strategies with me. He would take me so occasionally. He had a kitchen round table with very distinguished people around Charlotte. And he would go to Bill Spoon's Barbecue with all these guys with their ties tucked in their suits, their bibs on. And I sit there and listen to these guys talk. So fast forward to May of 1997, he called me to his office. He said, I want to share a couple of things with you. He goes, first, I got lung cancer. Now, we all smoked unfiltered camels since the 20s. So it was sad, but not shocking. But then he went over to, he had a big roller desk. He went over to his desk and pulled these, these papers out, came down, sat right next to me, put them on my lap. So I want to give this to you. He goes, what is he? He goes, these are the notes I wrote down in 1929 on how, how I became successful, how I was going to be successful. I want to give this to you, but you have to promise me one thing. I said, why? He goes, don't, do not let it die with you. He passed away September of 1997. And those notes I didn't look at until I was writing my book, Moments Matter. And at that point in time, I felt very ashamed of myself. I learned all this. He gave me gold and I didn't do anything with it. But more importantly, I made a commitment to him. I made a promise. I did not fulfill it. But this is what. This is, this is what I, my mission is right now. This is why I do what I do, because I'm fulfilling that promise I made by sharing what he taught me for all those years and those moments and those lessons that helped me not only through my business career, but that day on the Hudson River. And that's, that's why I do what I do. Wow. First of all, that's tremendously profound. And while it's incredible in many ways, I'm not surprised because, again, like you said, this iceberg there had to be a lot of quality within you. There had to be a lot of introspection and reflection within you to be able to have that kind of action taking in the face of that adversity, in the face of that hardship. I don't think that people understand what the situation was like. And I'm going to ask you to expand on that in a moment. But again, this is the power of exposure. This is the power of being in proximity to people that don't think nine to five, that don't think about $13,000 in a year. And it shows you it's possible. It shows you this person is not, what do most people do? They, if, even if they get into a mentorship or if they see us as speakers, they put us on the pedestal. Oh, but that's, that's Dave. I mean, he's got this tremendous story. But you are a human and you have gone through hardship. And even now we continue to go through it. So the way that you're using that to navigate and the way that you're using that to say, listen, you, you say that you turn adversity into opportunity. And I absolutely agree. You're showing people, listen, when you're facing this hardship, you can choose, is this going to be the catalyst that makes me go to excellence? Or is this going to be the excuse to keep me in this form of mediocrity, playing the victim, having no agency in my life or my purpose? I love your message. I love the work that you're doing. And clearly you're making a tremendous impact on everyone all over the world. If you could, could you take us back to that day, that moment, and then we'll continue on after that? Well, thank you for the kind words. Um, so that day, here's a short synopsis of that day. I was not supposed to be on that plane. I mm -hmm. we finished our work early that day. So I always, my strategy back then was I always would book the last flight, last direct flight out because you don't know how the day's going to go in business, right? It could go well or it could go, you know, <laughs> you keep going. Mm -hmm. So I had the last, the last flight to Charlotte that, that day was booked at five o'clock. But we got done early. So I went to the airport early, got on an earlier flight. Uh, and the, and the age of probably flight 1549. So that's how I got on that plane. And I gave up a first class seat for seat 15A on that flight. So, you know, I've been, I just want to get home. I've been on the road for three days as we're all business travelers or warriors, right? Mm -hmm. Nothing unusual. 
It was 11 degrees of snowing, so the flights were delayed. That's no big deal, but that's New York in the winter, so no big deal. No big deal on the takeoff. Everything was smooth on the takeoff. But about 60 seconds after is when you heard, heard the explosion. And that's what got my attention because I wasn't paying attention. That's part of my story is that I didn't pay attention. I knew everything until you don't know anything. And that's one of the things you learn. That's the distinction you learn is, you know, you fly and fly and fly and you think you know it all. And all of a sudden something happens like, what do I do now? Because you don't pay attention. You don't stay aware, right? But, you know, when I heard it, it's like, okay, we lost an engine because I saw the fire underneath the wing. No big deal. He's banking. We're going back to the airport. The plane. But as we banked and I looked out, I saw the skyline of Manhattan right there. It's like right out my window. Like I've never seen that before. And as we approached the George Washington Bridge, is what he said, the captain said his only words, is your captain braced for impact. And that's the moment I realized something critical was going to happen. It was it was crucial because when you have a plane descending and you clear the bridge by only about 400 feet and you go a nose right nose in to the water. I had never seen a successful plane crash, number one, or a successful plane crash in water, number two. So at that point is when I really, my mindset was, you know, I better get things straightened up with my, my creator. Because this is not going to look good for me. It's not going well. Um, but, you know, fortunately, he got the plane down. You know, and fortunately, at that point, we survived. It was a hard hit. I mean, it was a jarring and He hit between 110 and 120 miles an hour. So the impact on the water was was significant. But then you looked up and, okay, I'm alive, but now you got another problem. The plane's sinking in water. Got to get out. And that's why we talk about taking action. You can't stand around and just wait for someone to tell you what to do. You got to take massive action. And on the way down, my game plan, because I play sports, and in sports you always have a game plan, right? I mean, every, every team I ever played on, probably starting in middle school or junior high school, is you got a game plan. My game plan was aisle up out. I kept saying that in my head because if I did survive, I had to have a game plan. Survive, that was my game plan. What happened to me is I got to the aisle, it was my time to go, and then something happened to change that entire day for me. I heard my mom start talking to me. My mom passed away in 1997. But there was something she would tell me when I was a child that I just heard in the back of my head. It was, if you do the right thing, God will take care of you. And see, I tell people that's a, that's a point where, you know, I could have, as a choice point, right? You could have kept going with the game plan, which would have been perfectly fine. Or you make another decision. Made another choice. My choice was to go back towards the back of the plane and see if anybody needed help. And so I climbed over the seats. All, you know, the back of the, where the water was about chest level deep in the back, because the back of the plane was already submerged underwater. The water was already about chest level deep. But things were moving pretty quick. Because you got to get out. So I got behind the last person and I started making my, my way out. And the first light that I saw was on the right side of the plane at 10F. Like, I'm out of here. And then you look out and there's no room on that wing where everybody's standing. It's already filled up. There's no room on the lifeboat because it's already filled up. And that's why I stayed in the plane seven minutes waist deep in 36 degree water on the lifeboat. So it didn't float out to the river. And that's where it transpires for me. And then there's a whole other story. And that, from that point on, it really starts changing. Everything starts changing in your life because that's when you realize when you have to have leadership step up, you have to lead. And one of the things about that, that situation, what doesn't get talked about in the press, and, but you can see it if you see the picture that I show, there's no crew on the right side of the plane. The crew person who was supposed to be on the right side of the plane got injured. She got her leg sliced, so she went out there front left. So the right side of the plane was managed by, by people like me. No training, no education. But one thing you learn about leadership is you don't know how to know everything about everything. You just have to know how to inspire people to take action. And that's what I did and other, other people did. We had to inspire people to take action and get moving so we could have a, uh, get everybody off that plane and get them onto that ferry as quickly as possible. And that's, that's a short version of what happened in that six minutes. Wow, that... There is a lot that happens in that six minutes for you, right? Between this understanding of I'm not being present. Okay, this engine's gone. Okay, we're descending quickly. This may be my last few moments here on earth. If you don't know my story, I was paralyzed from the neck down while preparing to deploy with the military. I had flatlight on the table twice when they were trying to save my life. And being in a bed for four months makes you really look at your life with a lot of regret. 
what was going through your mind on the way down as you were approaching what may have been your last landing? No, thank you. Because one of the things I share is in that last moment, you have roughly 60 seconds from the time he cleared the bridge until the time we crashed into the water. And for me, what happened to me is I saw the movie of my life pass before my eyes. I saw things, those defining moments, like you know, that big moment you had in Little League Baseball or high school when you meet your wife, see your kids born. I saw these significant moments rushing through my head. So I saw the movie of my life pass before my eyes in that, in that 60 seconds. And then you realize what your life is all made up of. And then you have, I had some regrets. I'm like, one thing I realized that moment was, man, I traveled a lot and I was away from my family a lot. Wasn't there a lot. Because I was doing, Marcus, what my dad did. And I just, not that my dad did anything wrong, but the motto my dad grew up with, he grew up in the Depression. Yes. And the motto of the world at that point was, mom, stay home, dad's going to work, right? And mom raised the kids. And that's how I was raised. My dad was gone three, four nights a week, making a living so we could have a life. My mom stayed home. So that was the model that I, I probably either indirectly or directly, I don't know, probably more directly, dead, where I was like, okay, I, I travel, I'll make the money. My wife can stay home and raise the kids. But then you realize you're gone way too much and all of a sudden your kids are in junior high school and you forgot to, how many how many events did you forget to go with them. So I had some I had some regret. That's why I realized, man, you know, if I survive this thing, man, I got to sort of change my model, my world. Yeah, it it's a great wake-up call, right? There's nothing that slaps us from that slumber of mediocrity or the everyday or the mundane, like uh, something that kind of punches us in the stomach and makes us step back and say, is this what you really want? Like, this is what your life is right now. Is this what yep. you really want? And adversity forces us to make that decision. You were making a comment about how when you were in that freezing cold water, that you were forced to really inspire others to take massive definitive action as well. Were you inspiring them not just with your actions, but verbally? Were you telling them what to do? What Tell us, because I, there's got to be chaos clearly going on at that time. Yeah, the word, the phrase that I used that night with Katie Couric on CBS was controlled chaos, where yeah. things are moving quickly, but no one's out of sorts, right? No one's losing it or you know, melting down. Uh, the one thing that I, I, I share the story is, as I was hanging out of the plane, holding on to the lifeboat, but there was a lady on the wing that wasn't moving. Mm -hmm. And she was either in shock, stifled, I don't know what you want to call it, but she wasn't moving. And, in, in you know, being in situations in the past, if you were in the military like I, I think you were, and, and myself and something like this, well, you got something going on this quickly, you got to make decisions quick. There's no time to be standing around and say, okay, what do I need next, right? You have to act. And she wasn't acting. Yeah. And she was standing under the wing. So the training that I grew up with, because one of the things I had the very high privilege and honor of doing is I was a head of security for Tony Robbins for over 10 years. Wow. And I learned so much by being his proximity, right? I was like, I was with him, traveling the world. So I got it up close and personal, right? I got the, these lessons. And one of the things he, he teaches that I did is you got to be able to break people's patterns. That's a skill set. And I had that skill set. So I broke her pattern. I started yelling at the lady and I got her attention. Someone else helped her on the lifeboat, but I got her attention. All of a sudden, then you see people walking down a wing. And I tell people, it was like, it was like people were walking on water. You couldn't <laughs> see the wing. The wing was already in the water. So it's like people were walking on water. And so I think, you know, it's called the miracle on the Hudson. You know, there may be some miracle parts of that, like that, but that's what happened. So, you know, one of the things I, I teach people as part of leadership is you got to be able to influence people quickly when you have no rapport even. I mean, I had no rapport with anybody on that plane because I didn't know anybody on that. I had no rapport. But in, in situations like this, you got to be able to look at people and break their pattern and give rapport very quickly so they can take action. And whether that's get out of the way, move, or whatever it is, that's what I did. And I'm sure other people did that day on the plane likewise. Yeah, the whole reason why I, I call my podcast Octonon Verba, you know, actions, not words, is because we see it. We see it in business. We see it in even people that are consuming content, like from Tony Robbins and from all these tremendous teachers. They think that if they read the book once or they go to a single event, that they're good. But that's just the first step. That is only the beginning. And until you start executing on this stuff consistently, and then 
elevating and embracing adversity, whether it be breaking that pattern of saying, I'm going to go for a walk today. I'm not going to eat the sugary food today. I'm going to engage with my spouse or my coworker today. These are things that create that next loop, create that next step that creates the destiny of who we'll become in the future. But so many people refuse to do that. Yeah. One of the things that, you know, being around Tony all those years and now he's been a great mentor and friend to me, they coach to me. One of the things I know, at least by being around, one thing that frustrates him is he goes to those these events. He's putting 100, 100 plus percent into it, right? Yes. I mean, if you've been to Tony Robbins, it's high octane. Yes. Extremely high octane. And one of the things I know he talks about is these people had a great weekend, right? They enjoyed it, but 99% won't do anything with it, right? 99% of people will walk away, had a great feeling, and don't take any action. It's that 1%, right? Here's something and take immediate action on it are the ones who are getting results, right? Well, those, that's why those are the kind of folks during COVID and the pandemic, you know, they, they, they embrace the uncertainty. Because you know what? If you embrace this, like, you know what? There's, a, there's an opportunity somewhere in here. I don't know where it is. You know what? If I take action, focused execution, this, I'll get an outcome. And that's what the successful people out of the pandemic did. The ones who weren't successful and or even took was as far as taking their own lives, I saw no hope because they were waiting for somebody to do it for them. And you know what? The government will give you $1,000 here and there. You got you to gotta pull your bootstraps up. It's up to you. My dad told me years ago, no one owes you anything. No one owes me anything. Up to me to make make it happen. So I think that uh, they on that plane, there are many folks who led who had to take the action because there are a lot of folks like you saw in these events. It wasn't chaos, but they were shocked. If they were, I mean, you go in a plane crash, now you're in 36 degree water. Right? I mean, and the air temperature is 11 degrees at one time. That's a, lot, that's a lot going on. There's a lot going on to process. So if you're sitting there processing, you're not going to take any action. The people who say, you know what? I got to do something right now. If I, if you know, I do the wrong thing. And I, I told people, I said, you know, uh, maybe, you know, some people have given me some grief for yelling at that lady. But I said, you know what? Yeah, but you know, in the moment, my response had to be somebody's got to do something, right, to get this lady moving. And I couldn't grab her. She was on the wing and I was in the play, in the play. So verbally, I had to get to her verbally. So you got to do whatever you have to do when you get in a situation like this in business or if you're in a life of death situations. I mean, there's no time to mess around, right? There's no time. You got you have to take massive action. Yeah, we don't have the luxury of being philosophical or thinking no. in the face of that. And like you said, again, in the military and situations like this, especially in business as well, right? Hesitation kills. Hesitation kills ideas, execution, trust, momentum, opportunity. And as you were saying, the companies that I work with in that time. I did exactly what you're saying. I told them, listen, let's be aggressive. Let's lean towards this. Because once we're already in motion, once we're taking action, even if this first step does not lead to this thing that we're looking for, potentially, we're already in motion. And now we have a different vantage point. Now we can move. Now we can pivot. Now we can be agile because we're already in motion. But if we're just sitting here stationary saying, we're going to hunker down, we're going to wait and see what happens. And I understand that some of the larger companies have the luxury of doing that monetarily because they have this war chest to protect them. But a small business, even middle businesses, you don't have that. So what did we see? The smaller businesses that were already holding on by a thread, they went away. The ones in the middle that decided to take action, these are the ones that are actually increasing 30, 40, 50% end over end, quarter over quarter, year over year. And as you were saying as well, they did that because they understood that no one's coming to save you. You have to take agency and you have to take that action on your own. And what I found was once you take that accountability and that ownership and you say, I'm not waiting for somebody to save me, it makes you save yourself. It makes you inspire. You have your own first responder. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. There's so much to that. And it's also interesting. The people that I have seen that are the most successful that I've met that are in mentor groups at events, people that I get to interview like yourself, 
there's a direct correlation to not only the hardship and adversity that they've gone through, but there's a correlation to how they respond to that and how they use that as this thing that either helps them get stronger or keeps them stuck in that place. And you've spoken to millions of people all over the world. When a person goes to something difficult like that and they do not use it as this opportunity for post-traumatic growth, as you speak of, what is it that makes one person take the step to go into growth? And what's the step that makes that person get stuck? Because sometimes something happens at 22 or 25 or 30, and then that is what their existence is until the rest of their life because they don't yep. allow that to, that they're arrested in some ways. Yeah. And thank you for asking because what I believe that comes down to the meaning you attach to it because the meaning you attach to something produces the emotion behind mm-hmm. it. And the emotion is your life. Whatever emotion you're in right now, happiness, sadness, you know, whatever it is, that's the emotion you're in. That's the state that you're in. So the people that get stuck associate that meaning so tightly that this is devastation. And that's, I, you know, I knew that, but it played out in front of me when I was in the, in the green room of Good Morning America with the, a group of passengers and the crew when we were after the, doing Good Morning America. And one of the passengers got emotional. And at first I was like, what's wrong with this guy? Um, but what I found out later, I, first I judged him too quickly because I found out he was going through a divorce. He lost his job. Because wow. he associated, the meaning he associated to the plane crash was devastation. The meaning I attached was it was a blessing. Same situation, two different directions for our lives. So I think people, the meaning you attach to it, and how you do that is you have to reframe the meanings. And I had, I've done that many times. This is one of the things that I do when I work with companies and work with individuals is I find out what the meaning they're attached in their soul, where it's read down there and try to reframe it. And I'll give you an example. I was actually driving back to an event that's from the Gulf Coast of Georgia. I was about in Savannah on the parking lot called I-95. I wasn't moving. I was just sitting there, right? I mean, have you ever been on I-95 go up and down I, the East Coast? I have. I just don't move, man. Just yeah. doesn't go. So I'm sitting there. I get a phone call from a friend. He said, ask me if I would speak to the young lady who, who was one of the four survivors of a of an avalanche in the pilot. And I asked her, why do you want me to talk to her? He goes, well, you survived a plane crash. At least you could talk to her. I said, okay, I'll talk to her. And what I found out when it, I, he hooked me up with her is she wasn't coming out of her house. She was locked, totally locked in because the meaning she attached to that avalanche was she was she had a survivor's guilt. She was one of four survivors. Why did she survive and they didn't? So she felt guilt. So at that point in time, I really couldn't do much. I said, you know what? Give me, let me call you back. Because I knew to be able to break that pattern, I had to do something radical to break it out of it. So through my network, which we all have networks, that's one of the things I tell people. We all have connections, especially with the internet. Now, you want to get a hold of somebody, you get a hold of anybody right now. If you really, if you really, really have to get a hold of somebody. And I called one of my friends in England who had a friend who had a friend who knew somebody in Liberia. And this, they hooked me up with this young man and the happiest young man I've ever met in Liberia. And his job every day was to basically get water. He walk and get water and bring it back. And he was happy. So I asked him if he would get on a call with me, this young lady. And he did. And when we had this call, Marcus, what happened was that I basically let him talk. I basically let him talk about what he does every day, you know, how happy he is just to be alive. And every day is a great day. And, and all of a sudden, I was, I was having to use that story to reframe. I was like, you know what? Just being above ground is a great day. And, you know, you got something you can impact people's lives with. Because one of the things that I've learned about Tony and what I learned frustrated from Tony and helped me dramatically grow from this was one of the reasons I, I think I've done as well as I've done is because I immediately started getting out of my body. I started talking to you about it. And if you talk about it, you get out of your body. The more it's out of your body, the less it sticks in your body. What happened during COVID was you got COVID, you're here in front of your Zoom, it's like we are right now. Oh, by the way, we have COVID going on, so you can't go anyplace. Oh, by the way, you have social justice questions going on all over the place. Oh, by the way, you have police questions going on all over the place. Oh, by the way, you had an election. Kept going on. So everything was stacking on people, and they couldn't do anything about it. So yeah, um, so one of the things that I tell coach people to help is how to reframe the meaning, because that meaning is the thing attached to you, which will keep you where you're at or take you to a different place. I couldn't agree more. The event is neutral, right? The event is simply something that occurs. And then as you're saying, what do we do? In our mind, this means this. 
Therefore, this person sabotaged me. This person doesn't love me. This person does, re- does not respect me. Or this person doesn't care about me. When in actuality, wh- what do we look at, especially today? We're talking about the information age. Everyone is self-absorbed. Everyone is on a phone or a computer or distracted. So back to your lesson about being present in the face of that adversity, when that, that plane engine exploded, that's what it is. Without self-awareness, there's no way that we can have any situational awareness. And if we are constantly bombarded or artificially pacified by things that are just looking for our attention, trying to get us to look over here, don't pay attention to this thing over there. And coming out of COVID, I absolutely agree. It was that thing that was really compounding for many of us physically. You're a very physical man. And we understand that this energy in our mind, if we can't sleep at night, there's that's that energy or that anxiety or that fear. That's our body telling us, if we listen, I should try to exercise this out literally and figuratively, I guess, by going for a walk, going for a workout, going to serve others, if nothing else, because what does that do? What does a leader do? We don't ask for permission. We don't ask for an assignment. We lead, which means yep. maybe I lead by opening the door for somebody at at a store, it's not that hard. Maybe I go out and say the people around me that need that help. And that helps me understand that it's not always about me. And then we find meaning, purpose, drive, inspiration, just from trying to do the right thing. And that's very much what you did. And that's what your mom was telling you in your mind in the face of that chaos. Yeah, I, I, I could say it better. I mean, one of the movies I, I, I reference what I talk about, and I love Marvel movies. The thing about Marvel movies is they give you the backstory of how that person became who they are. Absolutely. And the one that I point to is Doctor Strange. And yeah, his, his story is a little bit out there, but it was that moment. I don't know if you saw Doctor Strange mm-hmm. when the, the ancient one was talking to her before she died, right? They were watching her basically go. And she goes, you still don't get it. Not about you. And I think if people, more people would understand that, then it's not about me. It's not about you. It's about a bigger, bigger perspective. If you can just take yourself out of the equation and look at a bigger picture, watch what happens. Your whole life opens up. And that's what happened to him in that movie, obviously. That's a movie. But that's what happens in life. Most people in this age, this information age and TikTok and all that, what's that all about? It's about you, right? About you. And some people make millions of dollars off of it, but then they crash and burn. Because all of a sudden, when it's not about you, you have nothing else, you have no substance to fall back on. So, you know, one of the things I, I teach and coach me was like, you know, first thing we're going to talk about is, you know, one of the things I learned hanging out that door on the plane is that other, some other people had better skill sets than me that day. You know, I had some good skill sets that I had to use. They had better skill sets than me. Sometimes you need to chuck your ego at the door, right? Say, you know what? Let somebody else do it because they're better at that. You know, it's not about me. Let, let somebody else take the glory. Yeah. And what do we see? I mean, we coach CEOs and these huge leaders, right? It's impossible for them to micromanage, or it should be impossible for them to micromanage all their C-suite executives, all their reports from them, because it's impossible, first of all. And then more importantly, you hire these people, you're paying them a salary, let them earn it, let them do that job, delegate, decentralized command, whatever you want to verbalize it as. But most importantly, as a CEO, we can't have all the answers. We have to look up and out to be able to drive the ship. But more importantly, when we give those people agency, when we lead them in a way that inspires them to continue to look for answers, now they are more invested. Now they want to be a part of this thing. And now everybody's winning in the process as opposed to this idea of, see, I'm the CEO and I'm the smart guy in the room. It's like, no, I shouldn't be the smartest guy in the room. I should have other people around me, at least in this specific area that are absolutely much more expert than I am because it's happening. It's changing so quickly now. It's impossible to stay up to date. Well, I, one of the things I teach is something I learned when I had the opportunity to escort general over Schwarzkopf years ago. And when, when you're around a four-star general, it's very intimidating, mm-hmm. very daunting. And I was very, I was very intimidating. I was very honest. I was looking up and I was asking, I got to ask you a couple of questions. But one of the things he said to me is about this. He said something to me, which basically I had to think about when he explained it, it made total sense to me. He goes, five plus 15 is greater than 15 plus five. And at first, I did not understand what he meant. What he meant is this. He's talking about the army specifically. But if you're in the army, you may have you know, a sergeant or a, he was saying a manager. 
that has a project to do. And he'll spend 50 or she, or he will spend 15 minutes telling you about the project, how to do the project, where to do the project, right? And he gives his troops five, five minutes to basically understand it. He goes, what I expect from my leaders is they play out the mission, they out the project, and give everybody else the responsibility of getting done. And if you have questions, ask me. But I'm not going to tell you how to get it done, right? I'm paying you to get it done. And that's the difference between a leader and a manager. That's the difference between a general and a sergeant. The general has people that say, you know what? Here's the mission. Go get it done. A sergeant says, this is the project. This is how I want it done. Totally different mindsets. You're going to start your leader or your manager. Yeah. And leaders inspire through their actions, right? By taking action. And there's nothing worse in a, in a company culture than seeing hypocrisy where they may have the most motivational posters on the on the board or, or talk about things, but yet if they're empty and, and vapid, people understand that. They can smell that like, like anything else. So the minute that things get difficult and you're asking them or demanding the best from them, they don't believe it because they don't see you doing it. They don't see you out there trying to do it. So congruence, not, you're not congruent. And what people are looking for right now are somebody who's congruent, right? Do they walk their talk? Are they doing backing up what they say? And so many people right now, and especially about social media, they, I mean, if you look at social media, you think everybody in the world is having a great day on the beach, right? And yeah. they're all losing thousands of pounds. And you know that's a bunch of hog stuff, right? But people are looking for someone who can, who can walk through something who's congruent. And that's why if you look back to some of the elections, Say so you look back at that election, and I'll go back to when I was my first big election I got involved with was Reagan and, and Jimmy Carter, where you know Jimmy Carter was not congruent, right? Mm-hmm. He was all over the board. He wanted to solve all his problems, and Reagan came in being congruent. This is the mission. This is what we're going to do. The people, you know, the government. We have too much government, but people bought into it because he was totally congruent with his message. And that's what we're probably a lot of these leaderships leaders right now are not. They're not congruent with the message. People are dying for somebody to walk their talk. And that's what I tell people. You'll get involved with anybody if they haven't walked their talk, run. You know, make sure they walk their talk before you get involved with them. Yeah. And, and that's a great piece of leadership advice with the congruency. You're in this leadership space. And as we're talking about social media or even other people that are out doing things, we hear pieces of advice. We also hear a lot of advice that's wrong or frankly dangerous. What is the worst piece of advice about leadership that you hear continually parroted that is actually detrimental or even dangerous as a leader? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if I've ever been asked that question. Um, you know, I think, yeah, you know, that's a great question. Let me give, give that a thought because I've not thought about that. Uh, what's the worst piece of advice, leadership advice? Well, you know, I'll tell you what for me was, I'll give you a personal example, is when I was with a company by the name of ADP, and I was the top salesperson that year, and so I was getting a big commission check, and my manager, my, my regional manager got transferred to Cerritos, California, so they brought a new guy in, and he had to present me with a $64,000 check his first, his first day. And he actually gave me a check, he looked at me and said, you'll never make this much again as long as I'm here. And I would say that's probably the worst leadership advice because he demoralized me almost just like that. Because he had to be the significant one. And he had to show his significance. So if he could take down the top guy, he's a significant one. Which actually turned out to be the opposite. I left shortly thereafter. But I think that was probably the worst leadership advice is try to bring, he's trying to bring me down and make himself look better. And that never works. That never works. That's a powerful piece of advice. And it's a great story. What does that, what does that show us as leaders? Let's give that spotlight to other people. The responsibility is ours, but yet let's let them shine because that's going yeah. to help them continue to, to excel. Because it's not about me, right? It goes back to that one thing. It's not about me. If you make it about somebody else, something bigger than yourself, and that's why I say, you know, you know I talked about gratitude. I mean, grace is fueled by gratitude. And what is gratitude? Gratitude is giving thanks to something bigger than yourself. And I believe the more thanks you give to other people and other things, the more grace you get. The more grace you get, the more opportunity you have to serve, and the more fulfillment you have and happiness you have in your life. That's my one of my core beliefs, and I may be wrong, but um, it goes back to what we were just talking about. It's not about you. 
it's a great reminder in this idea of, like you said, gratitude. When I see people talking about gratitude now as a buzzword, for example, they have a list or a journal or they they reflect on what they're grateful for, but they're reflecting on the things that they already have. They're reflecting on the house or their health or their business or their family. But in, in my experience, when I was paralyzed for months, I felt like a victim. I was very mad. I was angry at myself, which the definition of depression is anger directed inwards. Yep. But what I had to do is exactly what you're saying. I took myself out of the equation. And for four months, I was like, what was the advantage to this? What was the gift? And it, if I was focused on I me, mean, there was none. But when I took myself out of the equation and said, okay, had we been in Afghanistan when this happened, for every one man that is injured, it takes two to pull him to safety. So that means my team would have been compromised. Another group would have had to come down. A helicopter would have had to fly into a hot zone to come get me. And that was where I was like, wow, I'm lucky. Not that I was lucky, but that nobody else was hurt in the process. And I know that that was sort of a long thought process, but I had to find something. And that was my cornerstone of genuine gratitude. Because as you say, to me, gratitude is when you can be very happy that something happened, irrespective of whether we had some sort of like benefit from it or not. And after I had that genuine no BS gratitude, that 360 gratitude, a few weeks later, that's when I got a little bit of movement back on my fingers. And it wasn't much, but man, when you have nothing else in your life, it gives you that piece of hope. And then you just keep yeah. stepping forward into that. Yeah, it's, uh, it goes back to a concept I've learned and, and I work hard to practice called the gap in the game. Mm -hmm. And so, so many people, if you've not heard of it, so many people live in the gap of what they should be, what they should have done, where the, the, if you live in the game of looking backwards, say, you know, how much progress I've made and how lucky I am just to be here right now, all of a sudden you're living a life of fulfillment, which is what people really are striving for is live a life of happiness and fulfillment as you have to break it all down to the nuts and bolts. So the gap in the game was a great concept for me to learn because I, for me, for many years, I lived in the gap because I was like, you know, I'm, I'm not good enough. I've, I've done this, but you know, I was always much more of this. As soon as I divorced that thought and married the thought of, you know what? I've made a lot of progress, you know? And for someone who's just trying to figure this thing out, I should be proud of myself. It's like, you know, so, you know, I have these, all these little things like this, you say all just come together and it all comes back to that one thing. It's, it's not about you. You give thanks to other people first and it's about serving others first, which will come back to you tenfold. I absolutely agree. And I know a lot of very high achievers, people that are very wealthy, people that have made big impact in the world with their business, with their work, that have a hard time with exactly what you're describing, where they work hard for this goal. They may work for quarters or years to accomplish this thing, and they get there. And then they say, check, move on to the next thing. And they don't give themselves that celebration or that reflection or the presence, even for a moment, to acknowledge it. Is there something that you could tell people that will help them get into that place because they don't understand that long-term is not sustainable? It actually drains their capacity to do the work that really matters to them, or it artificially, it creates a metric around something that is not really that important for them. And now they cannot achieve it. And they're stuck in this place of feeling unfulfilled, ungrateful, unsatisfied. Yeah, when I, how I handle that situation, I still do today, is I make progress goals. I don't make goals. You know, you say, you know, I, I got to make a million dollars this year by January 31st, do all this stuff, right? I used to do that. And occasionally I would do it on something. But now I'm making significant progress towards making a million dollars by January 31st of uh, 2024, whatever it is. So once I change my mindset and my, and my goal setting to making progress goals, all of a sudden, I feel good about everyone that I have. And, I'm, and I, as long as I'm making progress and doing the right things, it's changed my mindset. Because there are many times and many years where I said this, and I haven't, 90% of my goals were met, either unrealistic or, you know, and I feel bad about it. I don't feel bad about it because, you know what, I, made, I, I have made significant progress towards this. I have had major progress towards this. And all of a sudden, like, you know, I look back on the week, I'm like, you know what? Yeah, I got some business in doing this, and we helped somebody doing this, and I, you know, I, I was able to serve at this level doing this podcast with Marcus. Yeah, it's been a major. I made major progress this week, and so you have 
different feelings. So which goes back to what we talked about before, the meaning. The meaning I attached was I've made progress, so life is good. Yeah, that's so important. It, what does it make us do? It makes us understand, again, if we were to reverse engineer any, like a million-dollar goal, for example, if we reverse engineer and break it down to almost an hourly type ideal, then like you're saying, yes, it is about this this hour. Did I make progress towards this goal? It could be very small, but it's still significant, and it creates that momentum, that compounding interest that feeds us forward. And then, again, as a leader, we're leading everybody else in that same matter. They see us taking every moment seriously, not wasting any time, trying to make all these things significant, make them worthy of action. And when we do that, that continues to move them forward, and it makes us... I love the way you're saying this because you're not using it as a cop-out. You're not saying, well, I did go for this, but oh, but I feel good about what I did. It's like, no, you were actually endeavoring towards it with everything that you had. And yet you still were able to step back and said, because I gave everything I could and I still didn't get to that metric, I still progressed. And that may set you up for that $2 million metric the next year because of this work that you've done in the meantime to get to that place. Yeah, my last core position, Margot, I mean, is so... Uh... Yeah, I didn't, for one year, I didn't sell anything. But, you know, I knew I was making progress. And then this last year, right before I retired, you know, I, I had the number two largest sale in the company. But it took two years and with the mindset of we're making progress instead of saying, you know, I did hit my numbers. And man, now what am I going to do now? Which was stifled me immediately, which means I wasn't going to take any action because I would be afraid of doing anything wrong. So, you know what? We're going to stay the path. We may make some major adjustments, right? We may do that. But, you know, that that helped me become the number two sales guy in our, in our division last year at the company I was with before I retired. So it comes with what Bill taught me, my mentor. It's that mindset shift, right? It's that success mindset shift that they people in that world think differently. And uh, my current mentor, Don, I mean, he is a serial entrepreneur. And what he's teaching me is, is you can't be afraid to fail in this. Because that's the difference between being a business person and an entrepreneur. There's a lot of people, business people think they're entrepreneurs. There will be a few because entrepreneurs, don't, they fail all the time. Business people are afraid to fail because it may be their business and they may have to shut down and do this. Entrepreneurs are like, you know what? I failed before. I may fail again. We'll do it again. We'll do something else. And I've seen him do it over and over. I saw him do it during the pandemic, which he was masterful at the, in the pandemic of what he did. Yeah, the people that fear failure should fail more often. Um Basically, if you want to double your income, you have to quadruple your failure rate. Yep. And if yep. you see it like that and you start to understand in sales, what they say, you know, I want these no's because yep. that gets me closer to the yes. Yeah. Just give me a no quick. Stop me. Just give me a no quick so I can get on. Right. And for years, we all just hang on to those. Don't tell me no, because at least I can hang on to hope. Hope's great. But, you know, I'd rather just tell me no. We can shake hands, part of friends, let's move on. That's it. And in that time of, like you said, building, what do we see? Sometimes we look over, you know, we're coming to the end of the year. We look at businesses and they're doing their their assessments and they may say, okay, we were at X millions of dollars last year and we want to get to double that. So the mindset is, okay, well, then if we're using the same model, we have to double our workload, double the hours, potentially double the employees. But what you're talking about is, listen, let's make this old business model obsolete. Let's streamline this. Let's do this work. Let's not be afraid to pivot. Let's not be afraid to fail in the process of getting to this huge win. So I'll lose the battle all day as long as I can win that war. But yep. most people are afraid to go out there. And it's not even about failure. It's more about their fear of what everyone else around them thinks about them failing. But, right. if, you would, but if they would just look and realize, as we're, as we're saying, those people aren't really paying attention. They really don't care. They don't even know that you're failing. What did Churchill say? Uh, when I was 20, I worried about what everybody thought. When I was 40, I stopped caring about what they thought. And then when I was 60, I realized that nobody was thinking of me at all. So go yep. out and take that action. Go out and fall down. Once you have that kind of thickness of skin, you're unstoppable. Yep. So Dave, I could talk to you for hours and I've learned so much from you already. Speaking of learning, you have a, a tremendous website. You have mentorships. You have masterminds. You have coaching, executive, all these different things. Could you tell us about the reason, I, I suppose, because this continues to push you and many people allow that hardship to stop them from wanting to share their story. And there's still a lot of work behind having to do that. 
So explain to us this compelling why that continues to drive you today and tell us how we can learn more about you from the website, from seeing you speak, et cetera. Oh, thank you very much. So what what drives me is something I shared earlier is, you know, when my, my mentor passed away, Bill passed away, he said, do not let us die with you. And for almost 20 years, I didn't do anything with it. So I was writing my book, Moments Matter. And I found these notes, these handwritten notes that he gave me. And I had fulfilled that promise. So what drives me is making sure that I now can fulfill that promise I made in 1997 to teach what he's taught me and Tony Robbins and everybody sort of brought it together. But primarily what those lessons that he gave to me to the next generations after me. And I, what I do at the end of my talks now is I just implore people, say, listen, it's incumbent on every one of us to mentor somebody and have a mentor. And because that's how I, that's how not only this is the legacy goes on, but also you can learn insights that you would never have the opportunity to learn if you have a mentor. That's what's happened to me. Uh, so I've been able to learn these distinctions because I think general knowledge is all out there, but it's these little distinctions that make all the difference in the world. So that, that's what's my driving force. And what I do, if you go to my website, DaveSandersonSpeaks.com, yes, there's, I have my own magazine, Moments Matter. You can learn about me and other people, the moment that, triggered them to be who they are. My books, I have my third books coming out in January, The Limitless Life. It's about those lessons that I learned after the miracle of the Hudson that served me that day that now can serve other people. But I'm also, you know, starting next year, I'm going to be doing online workshops, Marcus, um, for people. And what I want to do is we're going to take people that during that hour and a half, take people's major goal uh, they have is see if we can narrow it down to give them a, give them what I call a flight plan. To get that goal. So watch out for that coming out. We're going to announce that on the website here the first of the year. But I was just honored to have the opportunity to be able to serve people and keep this legacy going. Well, I'm we are honored to have you on the show and thank you so much for your time, for your pragmatic wisdom. There are so many people that are out there regurgitating what other people say or just mimicking what they hear from another leader, but you've actually walked the talk, you've been in it. And I highly recommend if you're listening to us now to check him out, check out the website. This is what you want as a leader. There's a lot of people that are paper tigers that are out there that have a lot of online presence. But to earn the knowledge and experience that, that Dave has, it takes a lot of hardship. And you will find that the people that have earned the lesson the, the most are the ones that will give it to you in the most succinct, pragmatic way. And if you were really trying to get where you want to go, you need it like that. You don't need to be sugarcoated. You don't need to pat you on the back and say, yeah, go make that happen because that's not going to really help you when you are in the face of adversity. Thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.